This is Creative Clarksville, a podcast that gives a spotlight to individuals that are shaping the creative landscape of Clarksville, Tennessee. We're your hosts, Michelle Feld and Tiffany Hilliker. This podcast was born out of the desire to connect with other creative minds right here in our own city and to build a thriving community of support for these individuals who often go unnoticed. Every episode, we will dive into someone's creative process, what led them to their chosen craft and passion, what challenges they face, and what their creations are providing for our community. So get ready to learn about the artists, authors, poets, comedians, musicians, healers, teachers, dancers, and so many more individuals that are making our city such an amazing place to live. Today we are interviewing Dr. Amy Wright, college professor, author of poetry, essayist, and editor. In part one of the interview with Amy, we will hear about her creative process as an eco-poet and teacher. In part two, her youth spent in the Appalachian Mountains influenced her voice as an author and love of nature. But first, a poem by Amy. Seven Second Meditation by Amy Wright Outside the window, a red-headed house finch plucks seed down from the grass as if he is running late for the theater, rifling through the bureau drawers, tossing scarves over his shoulder. Shells. Well, I'm, I was trying to remember when I first met you. It's a good seven, eight years ago. Um... I was in this group for creative, it was basically creative writing, and um, I can't exactly remember because I don't know why I was in that group because I'm not a very good writer, but I do know, I remember watching and hearing all of the participants, and you were one of those people, and, and I was really impressed by your creativity, your light, um, you have a sense about you of making a difference. And I know just over the years talking to you, I've listened to you talk about your passion and it's been inspiring because I know that you're trying to change this world. And I think that's that's important today because there's so many people out there that are just going through the motion and they're walking around, they're not even noticing how our world is changing and how it is affecting us and how it will affect our future. And I'm realizing that the way you write your poetry is trying to wake people up just a little bit and give them a consciousness of what's going on under their feet as well in the air. And um, so I'm just kind of curious to know um, about your passion, how you got here, what started it, what what is your driving force behind the decisions you make. Um, I'm just extremely grateful to communicate with you today. You're a professor at Austin P, correct? Yes. And would you be in charge of the English department? Are you, what do you do for Austin P? Well, I'm a professor of creative writing right. and I coordinate um, the creative writing branch of the Center of Excellence for the Creative Arts. Wow, that's big. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Is there a special name for that, like a top secret thing that I would have to use to get inside the door? <laughs> no, okay. just my name would get you. Okay, in. okay, just want to make sure. So let me ask you this: What made you go into creative writing? What was your your uh, starting point? Well, I've always loved writing, and I used to play school when I was a kid. And so I liked teaching, but as I was going through school, I realized that that was, those were the teachers that I loved the most. Those were the classes that I loved the most. Um, and I didn't really think that it was even possible to teach that at the college level until I started having, I went to college and had professors who taught that. And I was like, that's the coolest job. And so <laughs> I will do whatever I, whatever it takes to get a job like that. And so... The first poem that I remember thinking of is actually a poem I wrote about my grandmother who passed, which was the single saddest thing that happened to me until uh, much later in life when I lost other loved ones. And so I guess it became the way to commemorate and honor moments of significance and also to share because it was really special for my mom to read that poem and it was special for my family to kind of have that um, I guess, expression of um, her importance. What was her name? Helen Johnston. Do you have that poem? I don't have it anymore, but Mom probably does. <laughs> she keeps uh, a lot of childhood memories. Yeah. How old were you when you wrote that? Well, at that point, I was probably in ninth grade. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I lost her when I was seven, mm -hmm. but it really wasn't until ninth grade that I had... Uh, Rhonda Zimmerman in my as my English teacher, and she encouraged us to write creatively. And teachers, yeah. Why poetry versus any other form of writing? I love the texture of words, and still um, now I almost have to discipline myself because sometimes I think words are interesting just because they're beautiful. <laughs> You know, like moat, I remember, was a word that I liked once. Serendipity. I mean, you know, you kind of get high on just these learning. These, like, we learned the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious song when we were Mary Poppins when we were kids. And so, you know, just the idea of, like, a word that big or that complicated or difficult to say was kind of fun. So mm -hmm. I think just um, playing around was sort of the first inspiration. Okay. Do you feel like your musical background helped you with the poetry? It, it seemed to go in that direction rather than where my mom wanted it to go, which, <laughs> which was in piano lessons, which I took for something like seven years. And I did recitals, and I learned to play Bach, and you know, but never that well, and never with the joy that I ended up bringing to poetry. So I think that it trained my ear. I just not... Not like she would have wanted. So the resonance yeah. of the word mm -hmm. flows. When you said that you have to have it silent so that you can hear the way the words move through or, or resonate or flow. Yeah, there's just, I mean, all I can say is there's a kind of rhythm. Like I can almost hear like there's like going to be like five more beats and one of them is going to be higher and one of them is going to be lower. It's, and then, you know, it kind of plugs in. I mean, it sounds a little mystical, magical, but it, it, it's just kind of like a sense, a very light sense of, you know, that it needs to be this much more. Or if it's right, you know, if it's, it's not quite right yet. It's almost like you're creating a, a mantra or a chant or... 
Yeah. Well, I I don't want to make it sound too glorious because they're ultimately just sentences a lot of times, but they and they don't always come only as sound, but that they do tend to um, reach towards sound. Would you say your passion is two parts, or do you consider them one and the same? Because you have your writing life and you have your teaching life. It, it's getting harder to separate them, which might be good because they're coming closer and closer into the the same kind of like um, the same sort of source of energy and enthusiasm and and giving and receiving. And I guess that that exchange at its best um, kind of becomes sort of like a full circle. Um, I do feel like I'm bringing a lot more of my um, my real, authentic, creative self into the classroom. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like teaching has improved your writing? Oh, definitely. There's no question. I mean, it couldn't not just reading and examining closely these texts and how they're working. And then you have to explain to the students how that's working. And they explain to you things that you haven't seen about it mm-hmm. and you know how they read it in different ways. And your mind just you know blows open and you think, oh, okay, so this is how it's structured because a lot of times you think again like that writing is something that's just um that it is inspired and it's not structured or crafted in a way that a pot is crafted and that you learn to turn the lip of a pot with 100 times turning the lips of pots that are so so Mm-hmm. You know, but there's actually like a craft to it, or like drawing a hand, you know, and it takes a really long time to draw that hand, and it takes a while to figure out how a poem works, you know, and how different poems work in different ways, and and mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. I always think of that phrase, "those who can't do teach," mm-hmm. and I've never liked that phrase, right? And I almost feel like, well, those who teach are way better at what they do, because it is like you said, you get such a different perspective. Uh, and a wider range of knowledge when you're having to explain it to other people and then they end up teaching you things you just hear things in a different way that you haven't heard it explained before Mm -hmm. so I would like to see that removed from the public yeah I think it's really a flaw and and hopefully as more and more teachers who do become obvious um and maybe TED Talks will help with that. I, I don't know. I think maybe maybe there will be a shift. But I, I always heard that phrase, and I thought, but if you can't do, what do you have to teach? Right. So <laughs> you have to be able to do it to share it. doesn't yeah, make any sense. So. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about, now that you get to live your passion every day, what keeps you motivated to get up every single day and keep showing up to Austin P and teaching and making time for writing? What keeps you going? I do love writing. And people express themselves in different ways. And I think we have this... I mean, I have a driving energy to create. And so the way that it channels... When I was younger, I tried a lot of different channels. I played guitar. I took photographs. I danced. Um, I I did a lot of different creative avenues and at some point I decided that I could be kind of mediocre at any one of those and I kind of reached a sort of peak at at each of those and I felt like the one that I had the most potential to be better than mediocre at was creative writing but only if I gave it my full attention because it is a kind of channel and attention 
um, is what feeds that and fuels that. And if you splinter or fracture your attention into lots of different directions, it can be beautiful, um, but that wasn't what I wanted. I just wanted a clear um, single focus channel on creative writing. How does your passion translate into sharing it with others? I think you said that was always a part of the passion, Mm -hmm. or was it writing first and then later it came to be that you wanted to share that with other people, teach them how to do it? It was always writing as communication. So I I did always want that to be an exchange so that whatever I was saying was, you know, received. That was always important to me because it's valuable to write only for yourself if that's your goal. But that wasn't my goal. It was always to be heard and to be in in conversation. Um, And so pretty early on, I had to figure out how to make that possible because I didn't actually see it. Um, The kind of writing that I was doing was literary writing, not um, popular writing. And so I thought that I'd need to get a job where I could support myself. And then, you know, and I also did love teaching. You know, I used to play that as a kid and I just wanted to, um, to have that exchange. And I should also say that it took me a really long time. Just a word of caution for, I guess, any young creative person. I think a lot of times we can mistake um, what people say about their passion or their inspiration as something that they lack or that they need more of. Um, Because when I was younger, I I was kind of seeking it as if you could take more into yourself. Um, And then you would look more like the the great artists or the great musicians or um, that we see doing very dramatic things, not necessarily healthy things for them. And so I kept thinking that it had to be more dramatic, that Mm. that passion was equal to drama or passion was equal to intensity. But I think there's the danger that maybe you, because you don't look like that when you're just beginning to create something. And the creative act itself doesn't really look that um, dramatic. You know, maybe when you're playing an instrument, and maybe when you're painting very wide, flourishing brush strokes, but when you're just typing or when you're just writing, it's really pretty pretty dull to watch. And so it, it took me a while to kind of make peace with the fact that actual creation was very different from the life of the artist and the kind of drama that that I had associated with the artists Mm. that were modeled for me. So I want to talk a little bit more about, um, kind of the process of, you know, you discovered pretty young where you wanted to go with writing and you had a passion for it then, but how did your belief system or your values change over time? the more you progressed in the writing world? Well, first I should say that I did get waylaid for about two years being a webmaster in D.C. um, because after college, one of my professors said that 2,000 people or 3,000 people had applied for his job at UVA. And it scared me. And I went and got a job, you know, as a webmaster and and worked there for a while. And then I just really wanted to be in the classroom. So I had to find my way back, back to it and kind of build up my courage. I think when I first started writing, it's kind of ugly to admit it, but I I really saw it as an individual um, goal. Like I saw writers and artists as individuals and 
fame or recognition of greatness as a kind of um, personal success. Mm. And I think that's sort of the myth of you know greatness and masterworks and um, and I, I kind of bought that and also wanted to validate myself through that. So if I created something that was valued by others, then that would I guess make me valuable or more valuable on a personal level. And then fortunately, I came to realize that that's not how it works at all. Um, that it. For one thing, value can never come only from this outside external source. You have to personally already recognize your value. But also that value is never individual, that it's always in um, community. And that you, by creating, you have the opportunity to raise others, to lift others, to encourage others. to share in creative expression, all of those things are where the actual joy lies, not in recognition, personal recognition. I mean, there are reasons why you want to be recognized because, you know, it is an expression of self, but that alone is um, small. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's such a need for that in so many different professions, and I feel like it's a cultural thing that it's just kind of that sneaky little thing maybe the first thing we always ask people is what they do I always felt like I needed something really impressive to say to people and I was really driven by that for the longest time I wasn't really sure why (laughs) I didn't feel so satisfied by that Mm -hmm. and there is something very freeing about giving up on that sort of expectation like I have to be the best I have to be the most recognized you know that sort of a thing It is pretty, I don't even know if the word is selfish or not, but when you take that away and you focus more on what your work can do for other people or how it affects the whole Mm -hmm. instead of just, well, I would like people to know who I am, Mm -hmm. I feel like the work flows from a completely different place too. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like your work changed when you reassessed that? And started working from a place of not trying to get the fame or the recognition, but just contributing to the whole. It absolutely did. It went in a different direction. Um, But it was also always there. There were pieces of it um, that were kind of always inherent in my process. Like I've always done interviews. I've always done journalism since, since college anyway. Um, and so I was always kind of in exchange and interested in others and building community and reaching out to people um, as part of the process. But I think on an, just an internal level, my relationship to it changed. And then my work itself opened up um, more and the language opened up because my first books, um, especially my, my very first book, I'd say that the language is more is less accessible than my most recent book mm-hmm. which is much more accessible and i actually learned that accessible was almost something to be avoided in 
Wow. college because it was too easy or mm -hmm. it was almost an insult if you said well this is Frost's most accessible poem that didn't mean it was his best poem it meant it was his easiest to understand which mm -hmm. actually seemed kind of like his dumbest poem mm -hmm. and so I since learned that that's not how it is it's actually the hardest thing to make a poem accessible because you're trying to communicate something very complicated um, for everyone on in terms that anyone can understand it's like explaining thermodynamics to you know a third grader i mean that that's much harder than explaining thermodynamics to another scientist so um so i've come to value that and and the time that it takes to sort of get myself across um in a friendlier way when did you start noticing the change what was it after your bachelor's degree was it after when did it start to happen that you noticed this? It may have been after the car accident because I guess that that was, I call it my zen thwack, um, just because it, it really kind of smacked me off of whatever trajectory I was headed for. Right. Um, and so, because it almost killed me. And then, and that was, I was in grad school, so it was, I had just begun my graduate program. I was two months in to my, I had already gotten my master's. I was two months into the PhD program at Denver and uh, got in this car accident at a stop sign there on these cross streets near the school. And after that, I mean, it was a big wake up call and it was just probably the most maturing moment of my whole life, just because, um, I kept joking before that about having a second childhood, going back to school, and you're kind of in this permanent sort of um, mm. a, a world outside of the work workaday world because the school schedules are different and you have a certain amount of freedom. And, and that was just my real um, kind of recognition that what I was doing was professional and what I wanted to do was professional and, um, uh, and why I was doing it was deeper than any of that either recognition or um, I guess self-worth it just it was it had to come inside then because it was only me in that apartment going you know on my little crutch you know, you know going to mm -hmm. going to classes you know taking my comps and it was it was a really hard time and that was when I, I kind of had to draw within internal strength and realize that ultimately no one else really cared and that if I wanted to do it you know it was going to be for me and the value I was going to get from it um, was going to come from inside not from so, outside would you say that's passion that's where the passion comes from. I think it absolutely is. And it's a, a deep love um, in the same way that, I guess, if you're a meditator, you know, you feel the internal um, peace and love that arises from that space that is, is not coming from outside, is not dependent on outside. Um, yeah, which is where love comes from too. I mean, in any, you know, you might have a, another partner, but ultimately the love that you feel is coming from inside of you. But it takes a while to realize that. For at least for me, I I thought that it was coming from them, and the way that they saw me, and I realized ultimately that no, it was finally just 
um, allowing myself to be as I was and you know and then the love flows and then you're just kind of reflecting each other so you're at your truest form and passion comes from that point where I create not because I'm creating for outside of the world I'm creating for what's coming inside to be valued by me mm-hmm. as a person but also I can share it for a community um, and allow others to see it and maybe they'll benefit from me being authentic in myself. So you were having all these situations happening into your life. Wake up, wake up, wake up. Mm-hmm. And now you're at this point. And then your poetry woke up. So do you think it became more conscious? And what was the first thing that you wrote after that experience? Well, it, there was a literal, well, there was a character death. Um, I was working on these stories by this character named May, and May is an anagram of Amy. And so they were very playful and this buoyant kind of child spirit. And she and the, the students, other students in my writing workshops loved May and, you know, her child spirit. And after the accident, I couldn't write May. I couldn't access that. It was like that child, that the lightness of her and it just I couldn't go there anymore it was gone and that broke my heart in a way Um, and then later I found other ways to um, express what I had become and what I had seen and you know and it it was kind of a slow unfolding really I mean it still took years and is you know I'm still having realizations and and um waking up from different aspects of it after I had the um at that surgery on my back to correct another effect of the accident it was it was like I just started pouring out these memoir essays talking about the accident talking about the loss of my brother and expressing things that I never felt uninhibited enough to express before and it was heart-wrenching and um and so emotional but also, um, I, I guess just a healthy way of getting perspective on things. But it takes time, you know, and it takes distance, like physical distance, I think, to be able to see back on your childhood, you know, and to see back on other aspects of your life. And so I just had to keep getting distance and perspective and growing up a little bit and, you know, and seeing it again from another light. Because that happened, you know, a long time ago now, you know, it's mm-hmm. like 16 years in 2003 so you did graduate and you do have a PhD back to the PhD because <laughs> that's really important I mean those those are things that you know you can be a writer and you you're like oh I want to hide my accomplishments too but that's important and you were saying you don't want to um, Tiffany you were saying identifying with your credentials that's important to have those credentials too. That's, that shows the work that went behind your passion. I mean, if some an outsider shows up and they say, well, she wrote these books, but it's also you have a lot of, of footwork that you've created to go behind that word in your, in your poetry. For me, and it works differently for different people, I needed... Um, time and space and a certain kind of security to write. Other people might need to travel and be inspired by the new 
newness of their surroundings. But for me, I needed just the stability of that job. And I really did love being in the classroom because I could immediately see the direct relationship of communication, not necessarily with what I was working on at the time, but with the larger field of literature that it was in conversation. And I wanted to sort of be there in that conversation in the classroom. And I couldn't get to the classroom without the degrees because after I got my master's, I was teaching at a community college and I only got to teach one night a week. And I was working at a law firm and I was working at a deli on the weekends and I was kind of patching it all together. And I wasn't competitive to get a full-time teaching job at the university level unless I went and got more schooling. And so... Because there's 5,000 people waiting to take that job. You know, it's putting, you know... Not, not a real number, but I'm just it's for the competition of it, you know. So that's very necessary. So when you do write, what is the setting that you set up for yourself? I know right now we're sitting in this beautiful sunroom. There's light coming through the top of the windows here, and there's birds outside, and the the, the breeze is just flowing through the the trees right now. And I can I can see where this would be a very creative space. I wanted to have a place where I could be in and around nature, where I could see the stars, as I did when I was a girl, and I wanted to have um, quiet. Quiet's probably the single most important aspect of creating for me, because I listen um, for rhythms in both poetry and prose, and so it's really important that I can hear that. And so I I actually don't listen to music or anything while I'm um, writing, um, like many people do, but I... I just like it to be quiet so I can concentrate my energy on, you know, kind of receiving that um, current, uh, you know, of a certain sentence, what it's supposed to sound like. I can kind of reach toward a a sort of sonic conclusion a lot of times. No, that's cool. What's your process for writing? Do you have a list of things you want to write about and you make through your list? do you wait till inspiration strikes you? What is the process for that? When I was younger, I, I did wait for inspiration to strike me. And, and sometimes it does, and it's, it's great fun. And you sort of ride that creative wave. Um, and then I realized that there's almost a high to it that you don't um, necessarily edit and perfect the work in that same vein that the editing happens with a different kind of energy. And so really it's it's much more productive for me to just continually produce and write and, and see all of the process as connected. The revision is part of the same kind of um, uh, fun or enthusiasm as that first initial you know burst of like genius idea. And you also kind of get past the idea that that what you're creating is um, maybe divine or divinely channeled or somehow right as opposed to the ones that don't really feel right because a lot of times the very hardest things that I've written have also been the best things Mm -hmm. so just because it's easier it feels easy doesn't necessarily make it good and just because it's hard to write and you struggle over it doesn't mean that it's bad Mm -hmm. and so you yeah I had a lot more peace once I reckoned with that 
the difficulty of the process or the ease of the process as being ultimately kind of irrelevant, that you either way have to go back and edit and revise and give yourself time and space to get past that initial enthusiasm and be able to actually see what's on the page versus what's in your mind and in your heart that you think is on the page, but it maybe isn't there yet. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of the persona thing you were talking about, you know, how the writing process isn't as rock star or glamorous (laughs) as you would envision a creative process being. And you have to be okay with the fact of knowing that it's not all just inspiration Mm -hmm. and amazement. It's actually work and, Mm -hmm. but keeping that excitement through the process, I guess. Yeah. And I, I don't think we have that same assumption about chefs. You know, I mean, we know that they get they get icing on their cheeks and they drop spoons and break bowls and, you know, and they burn things. And that doesn't make them, you know, not a great chef, you know. But um, I think when we think of writing, it's it's there's a longer tradition of it being kind of this divine channel. I think that there is actual genius and we are capable of actual creative genius. And those moments are precious and rare and available to anyone in various forms of expression. Um, But that's not alone enough to sustain either a career or even a happy life. Hmm. Well, that's such a good reminder, too, for anybody who's creating anything, that just because the process isn't flowing at the moment um, or it's hard doesn't mean you're not meant to do it or that you know, maybe you're not good enough or it's time to give up. I think people think that if it's something you're passionate about, it's just going to be easy. And I hear people say that too, like, oh, it's just so easy. It just always comes out. And I've never experienced that myself. There are times, yes, where things do just flow perfectly. And there are times where creation is really laborsome and it's hard. Um, So I think that's a beautiful reminder just that it's okay Sometimes it takes hard work and doesn't mean you're not in the right vein. You should just keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a balance and an improvement with, with going through the steps. You improve with the practice. Oh, I'm sure. Do you feel that way? I have definitely improved. And I think probably the way that I've most improved is I've given myself more time than I thought I should have to take because I always heard about books taking an inordinate amount of time um, and mostly you don't see that work um, if you think about it the, I mean I'm mostly at my desk at, in the morning which works for me but people don't see that that, um, that time but I did still think that it would happen quicker and I have to give myself longer for it to get cold, for me to go back and be able to see, like I said, what, what's actually there versus what's in me still mm-hmm. that hasn't yet come out onto the page. So what is your support system like? I have an incredibly supported mom, and that's one of the first things, because I do. she is my first reader on a lot of things, because she is so consistent about praising whatever I read to her. Occasionally when we get into the things that are personal essays and we're talking about the family, she'll have some pushback against whatever personal things that I'm revealing. But she's very encouraging. And then my partner's very supportive. But my former students um, 
are probably the biggest joy because you get to see what they're doing with their work and what they've done with the lessons. And it's so fun to hear them say things that you've said <laughs> or, that, or to see them do something in writing that you know that you know they learned in your class mm-hmm. and or they'll reach out to you or tell you about something that they've done. And so I think that's probably the biggest kind of boon to my spirit. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, be sure to like, subscribe, and even leave a review for us. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And until next time, keep on creating, Clarksville. Today's podcast music is provided by local Clarksville musician, Daryl Kelly. You can find links to his music on our social media pages.